welcome to the Hublic Sphere. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Hublic Sphere's season on modalities of power. I'm Lilith Acadia, hosting this episode. To talk through the power of citizenship, I've invited five remarkable scholars, lawyers, and activists to join this podcast. Hi, my name is Amy Liu. I'm an associate professor in the government department at the University of Texas at Austin. My research focuses on the politics of language, the politics of migration, and the politics surrounding the Chinese diaspora. For my first book, I focused on the politics of Chinese language use in schools in Southeast Asia, namely Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. And in my second book, which is coming out next month, it looks at Chinese migrants uh, in five different countries in Eastern Europe and does it situates it in a comparative perspective um, with the Chinese community in Portugal. Hi, I'm Evelyn. I'm a public interest lawyer in Hong Kong. I'm working in a law firm and our focus is mostly on forced labor issues vis-a-vis migrant workers, asylum seekers and their various plights with a particular passion in helping vulnerable women and sexual minorities. I am a firm believer in common sense justice, meaning that lawyers shouldn't be talking about what is the law, what we call black letter law, but what is justice, what is fairness, and what the law should guarantee and protect. My name is Jeremy Bierbach, and by day, I am an attorney practicing immigration law in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, practicing Dutch immigration law. But in my, my academic background is in citizenship, specifically studying EU citizenship, which is a status that was granted by the Treaty of Maastricht to everybody who has the nationality of a member state of the EU. So in my work, I try to research and understand what this means. What does EU citizenship mean? What does it add to the existing status of nationality? And in particular, how can it be a source of rights for members of minority communities who are typically unrepresented or underrepresented in a given country in the EU, such as in the field of immigration law? Today, I'm Michael Belial. I am blissfully retired. My latest book is Inventing Equality, which focuses on the creation of the legal concept of equality in the 1860s and efforts to terminate that ideal at its birth. Of greatest significance is the effort to correct the flaw in the Constitution that led to the Civil War, its failure to define citizenship. I'm looking forward to my next book, which will address the ways in which citizenship has been weaponized uh, to deny rights to um, specific groups. I'm Sahar Ahmed. I am currently doing a PhD in Trinity College Dublin in the School of Law. Um, My research looks at the right to freedom of religion, where I'm specifically looking at the right um, and doing a comparative analysis as it exists under international human rights regimes and also how it operates in countries with Islamic jurisprudence in place. And so citizenship indirectly becomes quite relevant to my research because conversations about who is 
a good European citizen, for example, in vis-a-vis -vis Muslims and other visible religious minorities when they assert their right to freedom of religion comes up quite frequently. And as someone from Pakistan, citizenship is something that is constantly um, evolving, but is also a very hostile concept in South Asia. So it sort of in informs my research quite a bit. Welcome all of you. It is so wonderful to have you all here. Given the range of your fields and your areas, I wanted to ask each of you individually how you view citizenship in your work. So starting out with Michael, specifically perhaps in your new book, how do you view citizenship? Um, I want to give a shout out to an old friend of mine, James Kettner, who wrote what in terms of American historiography is the book on citizenship. He studied the shift that occurred um, from the American Revolution to through the 1860s in which Americans redefined the concept, shifting from subjects, your subjectship is based on birth into a nation, to citizenship, which is a choice. Uh, the United States developed a legal concept that you could choose to be a citizen, you could choose not to be a citizen of a country. Whereas in the traditional European model, if you wanted to change your subjectship from one country to another, it would require an act of a monarch Obviously, citizenship is a much more active participation in the polity. But the problem that developed with citizenship in the United States is if what if some group determines to decide for you? Obviously, we're speaking of white supremacists, uh, which has been a problem in the United States from its founding through, oh, I'd say uh, today. The U.S. solution to this issue, who determines the variations of citizenship, was theoretically solved right after the Civil War in, the, in 1868 with the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment begins with a beautiful legal concept. All persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. But as everyone knows, the essence of law is enforcement. And very quickly, the Supreme Court turned against this concept of equal rights before the law. Almost immediately, the Supreme Court started making judgments that uh, the rights did not ex extend to women, full legal rights did not extend to um, the foreign born. And even to, in the case of Rhode Island, they decided that Catholics couldn't have all citizenship rights. So equality and citizenship obviously must go together. Each is meaningless in practice without the others. What we have witnessed through the history um, of the United States is the weaponization of citizenship, the use of the concept itself as a hierarchy. This can take many forms within the, what I like to call the intersectional bigotry favored by white males. In other words, many times in US history, there've been movements to exclude those who do not speak English from citizenship. At other times, right-wing groups have offered the benefits of citizenship to whites that they used to disdain, for instance, the Irish. So this, these efforts to limit citizenship, to determine who to include and exclude from full legal rights has effectively undermined equality. And there's a specific problem for the U.S., which is um, through its growth, at least from the point of view of white supremacists, I should say, uh, through its growth, America's empire created a crisis as a country. According to the Constitution, they are all equal. In practice, that was never the case. And for me, one of the most striking examples is the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, because the problem with the Chinese from the point of view of those trying to, re to retain white male supremacy in the United States was that 
under the 14th Amendment, those born in the United States, even from parents who were not allowed to be citizens and the Chinese were not allowed to be citizens, those born in the United States could become citizens. And so the only solution Congress could come up with was to literally forbid any Chinese from coming to the United States. So this is an issue that has persisted and persists due to today. When those terrorists seized the Capitol building on January 6th, they were determining their rights of citizenship were superior to the rights of citizenship of people, for instance, living in urban environments. Those people's votes didn't count. They were by definition corrupted. I think that the issue of citizenship is one that continues to rattle America and to threaten its political stability. And this theme of who is included and who receives those equal or unequal citizenship rights does seem like a theme that may come back in other people's work. So Sahar, how are you viewing citizenship? It's heavily tied to not necessarily nationality or race or ethnic origin, but specifically religion for me. One of the things that I my research makes me look at is the way European citizens of the EU try and exercise the rights that they have by virtue of being European citizens in order to claim and assert uh, their religious freedom. And of course, that means agitating in their local courts, in their national courts, but that also means then agitating and taking their cases to the European court. It's always an interesting uh, balance that I see coming out about well, who is their allegiance more to? Their Europeanness, these secular European values that they must espouse and really uh, practice and perform? Or is it their allegiance to their religious belief and ideology or faith? And surely one must have preference over the other for them. And that's an interesting dichotomy that, that comes out in my research for me in terms of this choosing what you are and, and how if you deem to believe your faith or religious ideology to be on the same level for yourself as citizenship, or you might use one to aid the other, that can be seen as a deeply unpatriotic act. And that comes back to my work in Pakistan and looking at other Muslim majority countries, because, for example, in Pakistan, who is a citizen uh, is a very non-fluid idea. Gaining citizenship of Pakistan is not particularly a very easy task. Uh, it's it's much easier, in fact, ironically, to for me as a Pakistani citizen to gain citizenship of the United States if I were to apply under various different possibilities. But Pakistan, you know, you're you're born in Pakistan, you are Pakistani, your parents are Pakistani, and by virtue of that, you're Pakistani. You cannot claim citizenship by virtue of having lived in the country for X number of years. And so for me, citizenship in countries like Pakistan really comes back to, well, what does being a citizen entail? What rights does being a citizen entail? And one of those comes back to a little bit about what Michael was talking about is, you know, the right to vote, for example, to take part in the democratic process. And in Pakistan, that is very limited by virtue of your religious allegiance, so which faith you belong to. So we have, for example, in an entire minority community, a Muslim minority community, but the, the Ahmadis, uh, but by, by the Second Amendment of the Pakistani constitution, they are deemed non-Muslim. And that means that they are seen as an other, and that has rolling effects to how much they can participate in the democratic process, in government building, 
in um in any institutional process because in order to vote they must vote as an other and not as a general pakistani citizen i.e a muslim pakistani citizen that's an interesting uh, concept for me where it's more than just having passports having you know access to certain provisions it's it's more what what makes a citizen and what rights does that give one and that that difference that i'm seeing with the way muslim minorities are agitating to claim citizenship rights in europe for example is an interesting comparative to seeing the way it, it plays out in pakistan and jeremy you are also working with a european legal context so does citizenship look similar in your work to how it does in sahars Absolutely and I'm seeing amazing synergies here between what was already named first of all Michael mentioned the book by Kettner which uh made me wake up because that was the most important source for the first half of my book in which I compared oh, nice. yeah it was I compared basically the development of EU citizenship in order to understand what direction EU citizenship is developing in as a federal citizenship i chose the us as a as a model for comparison you know also the problems that were entailed by the fact that at the birth of the us there was this idea of us citizenship but it was something of an afterthought and it was really you know basically you had to be a citizen of a state first and by virtue of being a citizen of a state that meant you were a us citizen which meant that the states had complete power to determine who had access to US citizenship of course that was basically then seriously limited to anybody who was not white male or free and that exactly that created then the problem which came to a head in the in the dred scott case of the supreme court which um, michael alluded to and so i'm i see eu citizenship is at a similar uh, stage in its development where it is not the primary citizenship yet you know then the 14th amendment in the us reversed the priority you know it said in the first place you're US citizen and then you are a citizen of the state in which you reside meaning the states no longer had anything to say about which took away the power of these local white supremacist elites you know to determine who would have uh, rights of citizenship at least in theory took another 100 years to bring that into practice um in the EU you're seeing uh, a current development where it's still at that first phase formally so you cannot be an EU citizen first and foremost you do have to always have the nationality of a member state of the EU and that is more or less completely up to the laws of that given member state to determine who one of its citizens is and therefore who has access to EU citizenship but there are some really interesting developments going on in the area of law in the area of case law of the court of justice of the european union concerning eu citizenship which are finally making eu citizenship actually mean something and even limit the autonomy of the member states to for instance take away to strip their own citizens of their nationality willy-nilly you know the eu court has now said that this is a concern for eu law if a given member state strips one of its own nationals of citizenship because that means that that person is also losing their eu citizenship and so this stripping has to happen in a sort of proportional way the eu court is also applying this test in a virtual way it's saying in certain cases even when a given uh citizen of a member state is not actually being stripped of their nationality there are certain ways in which a member state can violate the right of one of its own citizens which are tantamount to stripping that person of their eu citizenship for instance in the case of very young children who have the citizenship of a member state whose parents are denied a right to stay there with them because they're irregular migrants 
um, the Court of Justice of the European Union has created a very interesting line of case law where it says that that is actually, you know, violating that child's rights as an EU citizen. And in my research, I'm calling this the Brown versus Board of Education moment in the EU after the first moment in time that I identified in U.S. constitutional history when the U.S. Supreme Court dared to directly uh, intervene and restrict a state in its uh, imposition of racist legislation on its own citizens. So, you know, this is these are the things that I'm working with. And then, yes, actually what Sahar talked about is the other interesting thing about EU citizenship, just like U.S. citizenship, is it's a form of dual, or as I call it in my work, duplex citizenship. It's a two-layered citizenship. You have the citizenship of the of the state, the local state where you where you reside and or, you know, where you're from, and then you have overarching Europeanness, and you can invoke your status of EU citizenship in certain contexts in order to gain more rights where your own state might be trying to restrict your rights, where that uh, most visibly comes into play is in the field of immigration law, specifically in the rights to have your closest and nearest and dearest family members there with you in, you know, in, in cases where your own member state restricts your right to easily have your partner or spouse or children join you. It says, you know, maybe you have to have a high income that maybe you don't have because you don't have the right kind of job or says that your family members have to take some sort of very difficult exam in their home country before they can get the right kind of visa. You can invoke and mobilize your EU citizenship in order to uh, bring your family members in, for instance, by moving to another EU member state. With these shared considerations uh, between the EU and the US, I'm really interested in how the issues in Hong Kong might be similar or perhaps very dissimilar. So Evelyn, could you tell us about citizenship in your work? From my perspective and from my practice, so I'm not an academic, so it's strictly just from my experience of um, working with migrant workers, I see citizenship as ostensibly a package of rights, but discreetly a kind of segregation uh, based on a heavily value-coded judgment of who's worthy of being part of the community. While the traditional concept of citizenship revolves around a give-and-take system with reference to rights and obligations to the state or in Hong Kong, it's to the city, I find that the card in question actually lies not in what or how, who, because in the case of Hong Kong, who you are predetermines whether or not you are a full member of the society. And the distinction here in Hong Kong um, is not so much on nationality or religion, but on also the nature of work. So to illuminate the background a little bit, in Hong Kong, citizenship is traditionally understood as essentially meaning one person who has permanent residency status. So permanent residents have the full package of citizenship rights. If you're not a permanent resident, so say if you're an expat, you could obtain permanent resident status after having lived here for seven years or having worked here for seven years. And the interesting anomaly here is that there is a very specific subset of migrant workers we call foreign domestic helpers. They are employed by local families from other Southeast Asian countries, such as the Philippines, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Nepal. They come here with a specific type of employment visa, not the general type. Their visa is called the foreign domestic work visa. And their condition of stay are different from everyone else's. And they're highly restricted. So um, foreign domestic helpers, they are paid an outrageously low salary to do long and difficult domestic work. 
they don't enjoy the minimum wage. They are required to live with their employer at the employer's residential address. They cannot normally change their employer. If they change the employer, they need to go back to the country and apply again. They cannot apply for their dependents to live here, and they can never obtain permanent residency status, no matter how long they have lived or worked here. And because of how they're treated by our immigration laws and policies, this second class or even third class state, they can never be seen as full members of the community. And therefore, they are very severely discriminated upon and rendered extremely vulnerable. So in my legal practice, I've seen how the label foreign domestic helper become synonymous to a non-citizen and how it defines your position in the society. And it's actually used to justify depriving these people of benefits and protection. So I'm coming from the perspective of seeing citizenship as being a practical extension of discrimination against people coming from less developed countries against women because 99% of the foreign domestic helpers are women and discrimination against the nature of domestic work. So I'm thinking about what Michael just said about the intersectional bigotry of white males. Here in Hong Kong, we have the bigotry of Chinese towards these less developed countries and towards this specific kind of work. And this discrimination against foreign domestic helpers in turn affects how immigration department looks at, say, dependent visas or employment visa applications from these Southeast Asian countries. And also on Jeremy's point, uh, you mentioned an EU case saying that stripping or violating rights of a, an irregular migrant's children is tantamount to stripping citizenship. In Hong Kong, there's a case which went to the highest courts, the highest appellate courts, the Court of Final Appeal, uh, about a domestic worker who's been in Hong Kong for years. I'm talking about like more than 10 years. And she has a baby, born here in Hong Kong. And so the baby grew up here. All the baby knew, all, all this kid knew is Hong Kong's education, Hong Kong's culture. Her friends are here. Her whole life is grounded here. And yet when this worker loses her right to stay in Hong Kong because um, she no longer has an employment visa, and she applies to be a dependent of this child who's, a, who's actually got a citizenship right to, uh, to live in Hong Kong because the baby's born here. The Hong Kong courts say, no, the mother does not have any rights of citizenship. You can't attach any rights to your child. So we're not saying that you're deprived of family rights. You can take your child back to the Philippines and live there. So in, in fact, it means actually the mother has to bring the child away. And then in fact, this strips the child from the citizenship that this child has originally acquired. So that is an interesting and quite disappointing judgment or viewpoint on how immigration rights in Hong Kong actually trump rights to family life. From your politics perspective, how how is citizenship in your work? So I think of citizenship as a symbiotic relationship between an individual and a larger entity. And so we can think of it effectively as a co-op. So the individual pays their dues to be part, to be a member of this co-op. Um, the co-op, of course, accepts the dues. And these dues are most notably, they come in the form of taxes. So whether it is an income tax, a property tax, a sales tax, VAT tax, a VAT, 
or a utility tax. And in exchange for paying for paying your taxes, the individual receives the, and these benefits include guaranteed security. And the guaranteed security includes security from an external threat. They include security from domestic terror. And they also include security when, if you are abroad, if you're somewhere else and there's a disaster, you are entitled to evacuation. You're entitled to diplomatic legal representation. And the reason I focus on the concept of security, whether it's domestic or external, is that without security, we are not able to go through our daily, daily lives in a very meaningful way. And in the absence of the security, we cannot do what we normally do in our daily lives, things that we take for granted. And so I conceptualize everything from the standpoint of security, the ability to do things because we have the security. And you get the security because you've paid your taxes. But I realize, of course, this is a very, very simple, simplistic one-to-one -one definition. So we can think of, we know examples, and we can think of examples where people who do pay their dues, who do pay their taxes, but do not benefit from the said security. Uh, the developments behind Black Lives Matter here in the U.S. is evidence that African-Americans do not enjoy the same security benefits as their white counterparts, despite paying the same, if not more, uh, taxes. Likewise, uh, in my research um, on the Chinese, um, Chinese diaspora in Southeast Asia, I saw this tension a lot. In Indonesia, for example, while the ethnic Chinese do pay their taxes, I would say eight out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times, do enjoy the benefits of security. There is that difference. There is those at the margins. There are instances when they do not. And the traumatic events in 1965, 1998, and even 2016 are very painful memories or painful events um, for the Chinese that remind them that they are not full citizens despite paying their taxes and despite having an Indonesia passport. Of course, there is the flip side. We also know people who do not pay their taxes, but do enjoy the benefits from the security. And so a good example of this is in my most recent work, where I focused on the overseas Chinese in Europe. And in my work, I've noticed the Chinese in Europe, uh, especially in Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, they are not citizens of the, of the European country. It is by choice because Chinese government does not allow for dual citizens. But what this translates into is that they do pay their dues, they do pay their taxes, doesn't mean they always pay all 100% of their taxes, but they do pay their taxes. They do the proper paperwork. They enter the European Union. And once they're in the European Union, they enjoy the benefits of security. And with the security, what this means is they enjoy the freedom of movement. They enjoy the security of having a currency that is stable. They enjoy the security of having a family and having their child go to school. So for them, the benefit is not the act of voting. It's not the act of running for office. It's not the act of having or even the possession of the European passport. It is the benefit of, sec of security to do what they want to do in their daily lives. What Amy identifies, I think, is a sort of brilliant way of framing it because the, like the Black Lives Matters movement has shown is that the preamble of the Constitution is not being respected because that is about security. Uh, you know, we, the people of the United States, order form more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain the Constitution. This is a promise. This is a contract that the citizens of the United States enter into when, and I'm going to steal from Amy here, I think it's a brilliant way of framing it, when they pay taxes, <laughs> when we pay taxes, we are not only supposedly having the right to representation, 
But as the preamble promises, we are being promised that we can be secure in our life, liberty, ownership of property and rights of citizenship. So any violation of that security is a violation of the very political contract that makes this nation. Yeah, I was just thinking about everything Amy and Michael were just saying, and it just resonated so much with how I think of citizenship and security and safety really come out, you know, building on what Amy and Michael were saying. Just for me, if I was to really conceptualize citizenship in theory and in practice, it would mean being safe and secure and certain rights emanating from paying taxes, from uh, having certain paperwork, uh, having certain legitimate claims over property etc. It really comes down to that for me. I'm, I'm thinking a lot as this conversation goes forward about what's been happening in India. All this conversation about the US is actually, I think, remiss without mentioning India because of how analogous and similar the problems are in both places at the moment. We have a highly right-wing, well, we did in the US till very recently, time will tell, but um, we, you know, we've had a very right-wing hyper-nationalist in the U.S., white supremacist in India, Hindu nationalist government in power. And the legal moves that have been made to disenfranchise certain people have been quite starkly similar in both places. In India, just for a small background to anyone who might not be familiar, uh, is is the Citizenship Amendment Act, which was passed last year, early last year in 2020, with protest, with the bill being tabled in 2019 first, and then um, last year, finally progressing through both houses of parliament in India. What that legislation effectively does, it supposedly gives protection to all non-Muslim minorities from neighboring countries. So, all Hindus, Christians, Buddhists, etc., who might be facing persecution in Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc., to be able to claim citizenship by virtue of being persecuted in India. That's effectively what that legislation is meant to do, so the government claims. But what it is actively doing is, it is further alienating not just Indian Muslim citizens, but also targets illegal citizens that the government has declared illegal who are Muslim in India, primarily because it says anyone, it, it adds further to that because it, it links itself to the National Register of Citizenship by saying anyone who migrated to India from what is now Bangladesh post the creation of Bangladesh is no, or who is Muslim is no longer going to be a citizen. That's deeply problematic. We have an entire cross-section of people who are being denied citizenship rights who are 90 years old and do not have the requisite paperwork that is being requested of them, who've lived their entire lives in India and have paid the taxes, have done the work of what it means to be a citizen and are now at this point being denied citizenship by virtue of their religious affiliation. There's been a lot of talk about how this is completely in bad faith because if, there, if this really was targeted towards protecting those oppressed from India's evil neighbors, it would have taken into account the Rohingya coming in from Myanmar who are Muslim, who have been coming in in droves. But clearly, the idea is to disenfranchise and alienate Muslims as much as possible. And so the comparison of that with Pakistan, coming back to that, the linkages, because critics have said to India, well, if you're really so concerned, then you would also extend this to Muslim minorities in Pakistan, for example, the Ahmadis, I talked about them earlier. The link between the two is so, so close 
in the way I view it, because if we're thinking about security, if we're thinking about safety, and if we're saying that by virtue of being a citizen, you should be able to live your life with safety and in, and, and in peace, then there's citizens who have requisite paperwork, who do the work again, so to say, but cannot claim any of that safety. That seems to be, at least for me, the base point of any conversation about citizenship. I can talk about endlessly about the other concept that other things that citizenship can entail, voting rights, being able to, you know, go to court, et cetera, et cetera. But I think going back to bare bones and the way Michael and Amy have clarified that is, is so important for me because really if a person cannot be safe and not be secure they're doing the work what is the point of that citizenship frankly speaking so as a political scientist my first gut when i first thought i had when i was thinking about what is citizenship i wanted to say something about voting the right to vote the right to have office but then i realized that's actually not what citizenship is that's actually what democracy is and so here's i want to give a example right in china you don't vote there is no elect. There are no meaningful national elections, but there are clearly a lot of PRC citizens. And so are they not citizens all of a sudden because they can't vote and the process in which you run for office is very not transparent? But then let's say hypothetically tomorrow, China suddenly democratizes or becomes a democracy. So are those 1 billion people suddenly citizens? You know, And so I think it was very, even my gut instinct was to go to voting. But it struck me that that was a very democratic viewpoint of what it means to be a citizen. And so then then I felt like democracy is about how we organize the relationship, structure the relationship between us and the government. But it is not actually about what it means to be part of this larger entity, part of this larger co-op. And to be part of the larger co-op, I felt was about security. And therefore, one thing China does do, even though they don't have elections and you don't vote in China, is they do provide security to their citizens, to its people. In my work, there were cases where when the, um, in Europe where the Chinese do get um, in trouble. There are security issues um, in Europe with the Chinese. The Chinese embassy does step in and they do get involved because they're concerned about their citizens, its pe- their people in those countries. And, and interestingly, there are, there are moments when China does try to defend Chinese people overseas that do not necessarily want China or Beijing to represent them, but that's a different topic. And so I think it really is about the provision of security or receiving the benefit of security, and it's not the act of voting. And I think it is about getting the benefit of security, but to be able to get security, you have to pay your dues into the system. Now, see, the U.S. Supreme Court would agree with you. And as you know, in Minor versus um, Happersett back in 1875, the Supreme Court separated voting from citizenship. They said there was no relationship, that voting was a political act by the state to determine who gets to vote. And the Supreme Court has never altered that understanding. Um, They don't see voting as a right. But, and this is the part that is currently interesting me so much, they again use it as an excuse and a weapon because on different occasions, the um, Supreme Court and state governments will determine that the real danger of extending citizenship is that you extend the right to vote and you have Catholics voting and horrors of horrors. We may have a Catholic president someday 
or in the case of the Chinese Exclusion Act, they were terrified that the Chinese would have so many babies that within 20 years, they would take over the state of California through the franchise. So it is a slippery ground that has been created in terms of relationship between political rights and citizenship. But I do agree with you, the one certainty theoretically that is granted by citizenship is security. Amy, I'm glad you brought up this point about voting, because um, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was Googling what citizenship means. And because um, predominantly um, Google brings up the American or British, uh, what have you, articles and things like that. So I thought, wow, um, political participation is a big facet of citizenship. But growing up in Hong Kong, I've never, or I can say people around me, including myself, don't really see voting as part of our rights as being citizenship because we've never really had a democratic vote. Rather, and I feel quite backwards here, is that citizenship to us means just having the right of a vote in Hong Kong. And the right of a vote is like the biggest question and the biggest issue in Hong Kong all the time in the history of Hong Kong immigration laws and legal cases. So back to the issue of migrant workers, they don't even get the option to to be a citizen. So they don't even get to think about whether they need to pay taxes because they're excluded. So I'm thinking about how coming from different political systems, we have such a different conception about what is essential in constituting a resident or a citizen of the country. But I do understand, I get your point um, about uh, security, although I can't say we... I can't say we don't have a security issue right now, um, being a Hong Kong resident. Yeah, this is this is extremely interesting and very thought-provoking. The thought that is running through my mind is that the term citizenship is often, of course, very ambiguous. There's In my work, I often see two parallel and sometimes competing strands of what is citizenship. And the one strand is basically, you know, what in international law is called a level of nationality, meaning simply just what state does a does an individual belong to in the international scene. And in my view, that can be also reduced to, or that can be connected to very, you know, old legal notions that preceded modern democracies of subjecthood, of, you know, the relationship between the subject and the sovereign. And this notion of protection was uh, inherent in that ancient definition where the idea was, you know, the subject owed the sovereign allegiance, and in return, the sovereign owed the subject protection. And, you know, this was sort of this quasi uh, contractual uh, relationship that was expressed in that relationship of subjecthood and in all states in the world you see that level uh, on on various levels you know regardless of whether it's a democratic order in that given state or not you know in all cases you do see the dimension of a state seeing itself as being obliged to provide protection to its citizens to the person to the persons who have its nationality, you know, whether or not, you know, there's any form of, of democratic say that those citizens have in the orders. Amy talked about the overseas Chinese in Europe who are able to invoke uh, consular protection of the Chinese government. And then you see another strand of some, you know, more aspirational strand of citizenship of wanting it to have something to do with political participation or uh, a democratic legal order. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to countries in the world. So the one thing, the one common denominator that, you know, all citizens have is at least this this relationship to a 
state and to sort of being entitled to protection from that state. But the flip side of that is what the international system of immigration law is based on. The international system of immigration law is based on sort of a consensus among most of the states in the world that if you do not have the nationality of a given state, then you do not by default have the right to be there. And that state where you are uh, at that point in time, not possessing the nationality, by default has the right to remove you or eject you or deport you to somewhere else. The idea is, you know, you have somewhere else to be, so you don't have to be here. So that's how I often explain, you know, the uh, tension between my legal practice and my legal theory. My legal practice is a negative one. It is constantly fighting this given state where I practice the Netherlands in its attempts to remove or deny a right of residence or deny other forms of right uh, to persons who do not have Dutch nationality and, you know, and, and invoking other norms saying why they do have to let this given person uh, stay uh, in that case. You know, particularly the most interesting norm that I can invoke is the rights of citizenship themselves of a person who is, uh, of a person who is Dutch whose family member is being denied a right to stay there. Similarly to the case that Evelyn brought up of the young woman with a baby. And, and Evelyn's work also includes asylum seekers. And I wanted to ask, are there some citizens who deserve more rights and more security and protection? Well, in the context of asylum seekers, it's really hard to say that they should be given citizen status. And by some seekers, I mean people who make a claim for non-refoulement protection, um, but are not substantiated yet. The situation in Hong Kong is that we have a huge influx of asylum seekers from different parts of the world. So Hong Kong, again, it goes back to um, the question of whether you can actually stay in Hong Kong, is that we, the Hong Kong Immigration Department holds a very, I would say, vindictive policy against asylum seekers. They don't admit anyone seeking refugee status, which means that if you arrive in Hong Kong and you want to seek refugee protection or you want to make a claim, you need to first overstay your visa or you need to enter Hong Kong illegally in order to be eligible to make the claim for protection in order for the process of assessment to start. So the problem is that with all these asylum seekers, whether they have a genuine claim or not, they're seen as criminals, either illegal immigrants or overstayers. And so we see the citizenship question in the context of these asylum seekers being relegated to the worst class of membership, which is to be detained or deported and to be viewed by society at large to be criminals. So for refugees, even for those who are recognized as having a genuine claim, they do not even get to be citizens. They can only apply to work on an exceptional basis and on very short employment terms. Um, they can't hold a Hong Kong identity card. So their whole status of being here in Hong Kong is in limbo while they're waiting for countries to accept them because Hong Kong would not accept them as or take them in as a citizen. So they have, still have to beg for assistance and benefits enjoyed by everyone else. So this goes back to what I said um, earlier about how I've always seen citizenship or the right to acquire citizenship as a tool for discrimination against specific ethnic groups. 
this hierarchy that you're describing is part of also how Michael was discussing citizenship and equality as a key concept, the hierarchies based on religion that Sahar addressed. And I wanted to ask, when certain citizens enjoy rights and others are then deprived, and those hierarchies exist specifically for migrants, as we see reflected in the discursive distinction between migrant and expat, um, how are these hierarchies then creating power for citizenship, giving extra power to the concept and to those who have citizenship? I'd be delighted to jump in on that one because that is essentially American history, is if in denying rights to one group while maintaining full rights for another, you've actually enhanced the rights or the power, to be very precise, of the preferred group. We have seen that we have seen that as recently as January 6th. If you believe that your decision-making process is superior to that of anyone else, you believe that you are justified without any need to disguise your actions or your identity to um, you know, break into the Capitol building to overturn a democratic election. It is in some ways just simply an attitude that my opinion matters more, but it's it, it really is far more egregious than that because the law was so often respect that attitude. And we see that over and over again. Again, right, right through American history. Back in um, 1824, William Wirt, who is the uh, Attorney General of the United States, was asked by President Adams to try to determine what is the nature of citizenship in the United States. And he wrote this fascinating long report where he went state by state through the Union. And he found that in every state, different groups seem to enjoy more rights than other groups. And there didn't seem to be a pattern to it, um, just on the most basis, basic level. Um, and I was thinking about this in terms of Sahar's comments, is the excuse to deny full citizenship rights to some religious groups was, they, they would look for a uh, justification. The justification would be oath-taking. They can't take the oath on the Bible because they're Jewish or because their um, faith doesn't allow them to take oaths, or they might be Unitarians and Unitarians aren't really Christians. Um, and so he finally, at the end of his report, uh, sort of threw up his hands and said, there is nothing we can do without amending the Constitution of the United States. And even then, states will probably undermine our efforts, which turned out to be exactly what happened after the 14th Amendment. The states undermined very effectively a uh, alteration to the constitution to establish a federal definition of citizenship. Sort of building on what Michael said, uh, you, when we're seeing power imbalances and preferences given to certain segments of the population versus others, we also see it in the way citizenship is weaponized and the term being a citizen uh, is bandied around willy-nilly. We see it with like, obviously in the examples of the US that Michael gave, but I'm thinking currently, um, I don't know if everyone's seen this, it has been in the news. Rihanna, the singer, tweeted in support of the farmers protesting in India at the moment, and so did Greta Thunberg. And in response to that, uh, they were trolled mercilessly by Indian uh, nationalists, but like just large segments of the pop of Indian population. And there was a very funny meme that was going around about, well, Rihanna is clearly Pakistani then, um, if she's supporting <laughs> the Indian, pro the farmers <laughs> protesting in India. And it was hilarious, obviously, but it, it, it points to a much larger and much more insidious 
practiced that we see that whenever uh, segments of the population um, exercise their citizenship rights of, for example, protest, they are seen as being uh, or at least labeled as non-citizens. And in this context, as citizens of an enemy nation. So Muslims, when they protest in India, or when just someone doesn't like them, frankly speaking, they're said, you're a Pakistani. And, and that's a slur in that sense, because if you're Pakistani, then you're obviously anti-India and you can't be an Indian citizen. And your being Pakistani can be invoked by virtue of being you know, Muslim, by protesting, uh, by being anti-BJP. In Pakistan, we have the same thing. Anyone that goes against establishment is called an Indian agent immediately, is said to be an Indian citizen, um, is said to be receiving funds secretly from India. And we see citizenship being weaponized in ways that not just makes the power imbalance really stark, but is also dangerous because the consequences of being labeled as an Indian or Pakistani in the other, in the opposite country can be life and death uh, for people and has been. Rihanna won't get dragged into a jail in Delhi and will not be lynched, but you know, um, someone on the ground can very well be. And we've seen that happening recently. So uh, despite having all like faith in these concepts legally because of my legal background, I'm very often seeing when, when talking about these things or seeing examples of the way citizenship is abused and misused. The power is scary for me uh, as someone lo- overlooking this and also just makes it, for, at least for me, makes citizenship just seem quite redundant in many ways, despite the fact that I will be first in line claiming European citizenship uh, when I marry my Irish boyfriend uh, because that passport is very valuable. <laughs> but you know, it's, these are important. These are important uh, things to think about. Does it even matter in the end? It's almost like an anti-citizenship. It's like you do not support our view of India, therefore you are Pakistani. Is to attribute a citizenship to you. It's an incredible exercise of arrogance and self-confidence at the same time. It's, it, it's, it reminds me of the way that if you, right now, if you are, um, disagree with a certain political position, you may be labeled a communist still. And, uh, you know, this is to attribute a different identity to you. It's, uh, that it's fascinating that it's occurring in this way. If I may ask really quickly, Sahar, the Muslims who are not allowed full citizenship rights in Pakistan, what is the justification, the legal justification for denying them those full rights? That they are non-Muslims. So in Pakistan in 1974, the Second Amendment was passed to the Constitution that labeled a certain group of self-identifying Muslims as non-Muslim. The Constitution was amended to declare only them as non-Muslim. And what that meant then was, uh, first of all, there was a hierarchy created in terms of you're not just um, the other, as in I, you're not non-Muslim, you are an ex-Muslim in a sense, that you have been oh. uh, kicked out of uh, the majority, as opposed to that you've already been aligning with the minority, you know? So there was an informal hierarchy created within the majority Muslim population, the non-Muslim minority, and then this ex-minority, which is uh, the other in this sense, because we don't want them as as our own because they don't belong. Uh, They don't want to claim to be non-Muslim. They they assert their Muslimness. Therefore, they are just this extra entity. And that 
has affected the citizenship rights that they can claim then as a result. So they declared them apostates. Isn't that the worst thing you can do if you're Muslim is to leave the church? Basically, absolutely. They have been there. Uh That's exactly what they've been declared. And that's actually linking it back to the conversation of safety and security. They are Pakistani citizens. But because of this apostate status that they now have, of course, it's against the law to kill them. But it happens very frequently (laughs) and very easily. (laughs) And it's justified on the basis of the fact that, well, you know, they're the worst kind of people because they're not just non-Muslim. They blasphemed against the faith and became apostates. So, I mean, they're not granted then safety of the law, which they would by virtue of being citizen. But because of this hierarchy that is created, they're really not. That's what the state of Missouri and the state of Illinois did to the um, Mormons back in the uh, 1830s and early 1840s. That's absolutely right. Yeah, that's incredible. There's actually a very interesting uh, comparison between this particular minority, the Amethyst and Mormons, Michael. um, And I'd be happy to have a conversation with you afterwards about this. But uh, (laughs) absolutely, (laughs) they've been very frequently called Pakistan's Mormons (laughs) because of this. Yeah. That's incredible and fascinating. Thank you. This is very thought-provoking for me, too, uh, coming from the Netherlands, where uh, there's an extremely vigorous discourse about people who are of immigrant origin, or in in particular Muslims, as being sort of not really Dutch or antithetical to the Dutch identity. And this is, you know, I bemoan this as a citizenship scholar that in the Netherlands, in the country where I live, there's very little citizenship discourse. There's very little in the Dutch language. There's really no very convincing way to say, yes, but you can't do that to me. I'm a Dutch citizen. Uh, The Dutch language is actually rather impoverished as far as that goes. People just talk about like, oh, are you Dutch? In fact, even the law describes the state of Dutch nationality as just being Nederlander, being a Dutchman or Dutchwoman, and doesn't have a separate word for citizenship or nationality that goes along with that. That confuses the discourse extremely because uh, I really get a feeling though that a majority of non-lawyers in the Netherlands really do not seem to understand that you can actually be Dutch without being white, without being blonde and having blue eyes and having ancestors who wore clogs uh, as they walked (laughs) through the the Rhine uh, Delta. You know, there's this constant discourse talking about how people of immigrant or post-colonial origin are not really Dutch. They're, you know, they're referred to primarily by the adjective describing their origin, described primarily as Moroccans or Turks or Antillians. Uh, or whatever, and in as an antithesis to what being Dutch is, and being Dutch referring to being somehow uh, indigenous to this area, even though this particular corner of Northwest Europe has always been crisscrossed by migration. And it's said blondest, you know, Dutch people you can find will still always have an ancestor at least four generations back who came from Spain or who came from Belgium or who came from Germany. Um, So I'm constantly witnessing this discourse of othering going on here, where similar to what goes on in India, that Sahar was talking about, where Muslims are othered relative to India and in Pakistan, where non-Muslims are othered uh, relative to Pakistan. Here, you know, you see that discourse going on all the time, ways in which even though two people might share the abstract status of having the nationality of the kingdom of the Netherlands of being Dutch citizens, if one of them is brown or of immigrant or post-colonial origin, that person will be constantly othered and described as something else. And 
the most pernicious form of this discourse is now it has actually gained legal form in the way there's a distinct way in which certain Dutch citizens of migrant origin are even legally treated differently. And that is with regard to those who happen to have a second nationality, uh, often not by choice, but usually because their uh, their country of ancestry, you know, possibly against their will, uh, still grant still says that they are national. So in particular, this relates to Dutch citizens who are of Moroccan origin or who are of Iranian origin. Um, they are seen by Morocco relatives or, or, or respectively by Iran as being Moroccan or Iranian and therefore having the nationality of that country, even if they never make use of that nationality, even if they never ask to have a passport from that country or never you know, wish to ident- be identified as such. So several years ago, uh, the Dutch legislature introduced a new provision into Dutch citizenship law, uh, which provided for the stripping of Dutch nationality for persons deemed to have gotten involved with certain terrorist organizations. The now retired uh, professor of citizenship, René de Groot, issued a very you know, thundering condemnation of this uh, proposed law several years ago in his valedictory lecture at the University of Maastricht, in which he said, hmm, this is really funny because this list of terrorist organizations does not include the IRA. It does not include the KKK. It does not include the Tamil Tigers. What does it include? It includes Al-Qaeda, IS, and basically only sort of Islamist-associated terrorist organizations. So This was passed and this was introduced into law saying any Dutch citizen who is found to be involved with one of these organizations can have their Dutch citizenship stripped from them unless doing so would render that person stateless. So this introduced a very pernicious form of actual de jure discrimination uh, into the law because, you know, if a person who is a mono Dutch citizen, so to speak, has Dutch citizenship and no other citizenship were to be uh, involved with uh, IS or Al Qaeda and were to be, you know, convicted of that or, you know, or deemed to have been involved in that, their Dutch citizenship cannot be stripped from that. Jeremy's point on the othering of Muslim immigrants really reminds me of the theme in your new book, Amy, about the relationship between Muslim and Chinese migrants in Hungary. Would you like to say anything about that? One of the countries I did my research in uh, was in Hungary, and I spent a lot of time uh, interviewing and doing surveys of the Chinese population there. It always struck me that in the height of all the very nationalist rhetoric coming out by the Hungarian government about the Muslims, their terrorists, and so forth, and I had noticed in the height of all this nationalist rhetoric, they also turned the tables on, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily just Muslims. It was also they went after Romas, they went after Jews, they went after everyone. So it was basically others, anyone that was not deemed Hungarian, that was not a Magyar, was considered dangerous, bad, a threat to Hungary. But in all this, the Chinese population, the the Chinese population and all the surveys and all the responses were over the top positive about Hungary. They loved the Hungarian government. They loved Orban. They thought Orban was great. And and then I would ask them about, well, what did you think about the border fence? And they would just say, they would actually say really, really racist things back to me. They would really, it was very clear that the Chinese did not see themselves. Ironically, they are clearly an other, but they do not see themselves as an other. And they would place all the others as others. And they saw themselves as part of the in-group. And one reason why they would put themselves in the in-group is that every time the Hungarian government came down with a new legislation or had a new policy initiative about targeting the out-group, 
whether it's Romas or um, Muslims, the government would send someone to the Chinese community to reiterate or to make it very clear that this policy did not apply to the Chinese because the Chinese are good migrants. That was so it was very clear that despite the fact that I always felt that I was an other, I was an outsider when I was in Hungary, it was very clear that the Chinese do not see themselves as outsiders. And so I'm reminded of a story, um, a white, blue, uh, white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired Dutch friend. He once told me that when it was, I believe it was the Chinese Indonesians showed up in the Netherlands. They were branded as the other. It was just terrible. Then the Surinamese showed up and suddenly the Indonesians were viewed as, okay, and they're in the anger. And then even the Indonesians othered the Surinamese. Then it was, I can't remember where, another place came up and you suddenly saw the Surinamese and Indonesians got pushed into the in-group and they all othered that new group. And then now it's the Muslims. And so they are all up together in the in-group and othering out the Muslims. That's a great American tradition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, no Irish need apply in the 1840s. And then in the 1860s, the Irish join the in-group because of their service in the Civil War, and they can look down on the Italians. And then in the 1890s, the Italians become part of the in-group, and they look down on the Hungarians and uh, the Poles. And it just, of course, keeps going that. In terms of uh, the West Coast, when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, there were Japanese living in, in California who supported the Chinese Exclusion Act because they weren't Chinese. They weren't the same group. And the Japanese were, for a period of time, a preferred minority, um, much praised by Theodore Roosevelt, for instance. Now, of course, that all changed, as we know, in uh, December 7th, 1941, when suddenly they found themselves in concentration camps. But it was, you know, it's this, this shuffling that goes on by the white supremacists to constantly rearrange um, where they can direct their ire, but always with the point of keeping their power. There's always some core authority that must be maintained, at least in, in terms of American history. And I'm willing to bet in um, the stories of other nations as well. And it's also about closeness to whiteness, right? Like how mm, in yeah. particular with all, with all Western white, uh, I'm heavily rolling my eyes when I say that, but um, <laughs> in these countries, it's, uh, it's it's always the other ring and the in group and the out group is always about how close you can be to being white and how far how much how you can distance yourself from blackness when we see in community racism it's exactly that south asians are famous in the us and in other parts of europe for distancing themselves against black populations because you know by doing so they're favoring themselves better with with the white population. It's, it's, they, they become closer to the whiteness at, at the more they distance and the more they discriminate against black people. Unfortunately, citizenship in these countries comes come really so heavily linked with questions of race and they can't be divorced from them, I think. Yeah, Ariella Gross wrote a wonderful series of studies which we brought together in a book on how courts in America tried to define blackness because of the history of rape under slavery, the color differential differential is quite dramatic. And there were a lot of black people don't necessarily look black in uh, to 19th century courts. And so they needed some way of defining blackness. And they tried all sorts of things. Like she has this wonderful section on feet, how examination of feet was used to determine 
blackness. So we use a color descriptor, black, but we don't necessarily in the United States know what it means. And the courts have to try for the purposes of citizenship, for the purposes of what rights do you get and what rights don't you get, where do your children go to school, et cetera, et cetera. They have to define, is this person black? And they tried all sorts of ways, you know, uh, again, feet, noses. They tried to uh, establish this notion of one sixteenth blood um, being black, which of course makes zero sense. They would always try and come up with these definitions and it always would come down to basically just how they felt when they looked at the person is the conclusion that she often reaches in these examinations of court records. And it matters. It matters enormously. Every example we're giving is someone's life could be dramatically altered or even ruined because a court determines that you are not enjoying full citizenship rights because you belong to this specific group, which they have identified as a lesser group. Yeah, it's very fascinating. I mean, speaking of, uh, of what, uh, what Amy mentioned about the Dutch history of you know, successive generations othering the next one. Yes, that's absolutely true. And in fact, one of the most striking representatives of the, of, of the two political parties who are most anti-immigrant so to speak, you know, or partly in Indonesian origin, you know, they, they've, they've become so integrated into the idea of Dutch whiteness, they uh, consider themselves to be authorized to speak for it. And they do constantly. And and the one, Thierry Baudet, of the new upstart Forum for Democracy, he has some, in fact, some really uh, strange uh, intellectual kinks and turns in the way that he argues things. Uh, speaking of religion as a marker of otherness, he has also tried to claim, in order, in a, by way of othering Muslims, he, he even said once, well, you, you have various sorts of Christians. You know, he said, you know, the, the Netherlands is a Christian society. So you have various sorts of Christians. You have Protestants, you have Catholics, and then you have atheists. And then on the <laughs> other side, you have Muslims. He, he himself identifies as atheist, yet... <laughs> He manages to somehow be able to bring himself under the umbrella of Christianness at the same time, which is extremely unusual. Uh, we we got, often joke in in my house that my uh, my very Irish, very Catholic black maid from Belfast. We always talk about how they're very. All my friends are very upset that I'm apparently a Protestant Muslim, much to their disappointment. So uh, you can definitely be an atheist Christian then. There was an old joke when we lived in Ireland a long time ago, which was that family driving near the uh, Northern Irish border stopped by um, people wearing um, masks and their the guns are pointing at them and they say, are you a Catholic or Protestant? I won't do an Irish accent, I promise. Are you Catholic or Protestant? And the driver says, I'm neither, I'm Jewish. And there's this long confusion. And then finally he says, well, are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? <laughs> <laughs> you have to choose citizenship you know your life demands i would never be let in so religion and race are clearly very important instruments of determining in-group out-group and i wanted to talk about two others one of them is language and amy your your work on language definitely has something to say to this. Do you want to start us off with language? We can think of language for, in two ways. One is that it is a marker of a group identity. And when you can speak the language, you are part of that group. You identify it as the phrase mother, your mother tongue, right? It's your native language, language to speak at home. But then language is also simply a tool to help communicate and to communicate what you need. And it is important that when you do not speak, 
when you're not able to speak the language of the country you are in, uh, you are therefore automatically deprived of the opportunity, at least deprived of the opportunity to enjoy the benefits of security. Uh, you are not able to read fine print for what the agreements are for you paying taxes to get the security. When and I think this suggests that when outsiders, migrants, immigrants, asylum seekers do not are, do not speak or do not know the working language of the host country, this automatically deprives them of the opportunity to enjoy these security. And so one of the, in my work on the Chinese in Europe, I found basically two groups of Chinese and they are all PRC passport holders. They are all first generation. So this is like something that's being held constant. But there is one group of Chinese that are from one or two Southern provinces in China where vernacular that they speak is mutually unintelligible with Mandarin. And there's a large population of them. And so when they settle down, they just speak their vernacular and they're able to form a very cohesive group. And they also then employ migration chains, bring out more of their own from their province, and they just continues on and they remain very insular. In contrast, the other group of Chinese migrants are from all over China or from Northern China. And they all speak either as a first vernacular or as a second vernacular, Mandarin. And so as a result, this is what they all interact in. And also when the locals do speak and do learn Chinese, they're also learning Mandarin. So this is so inherently in their daily interactions. They come to contact with locals. And when they come into contact with locals, they also start learning the local language as well. And so what I actually find is that the Chinese migrants who are actually using Mandarin more often, they actually end up being more integrated, more incorporated into the European country than their counterparts. The same Chinese nationals who are holding the same passport who are coming from these certain southern provinces instead. When I was doing my surveys and doing my interviews, I would ask them how much do they trust the police, like if they were robbed, would they go to the police? And you would see a very stark difference. Those that operated frequently in either Mandarin or in the European language would trust going to the police. And those that came from two particular southern provinces would say no, they would not. And so I think language, not having language is certainly a barrier. Uh, having the language, even if it's a very basic command of the language, opens doors. And of course, there may still be a glass ceiling at the end of it all. But, and I'm mixing my metaphors here, but at least I think language is a way for you to engage with the locals and, and enjoy some of the benefits that come from that security. That is really fascinating, Amy, uh, what you said about the role of Mandarin as a sort of secondary vernacular in European countries, because it, it does sort of dovetail with what I observe in my sort of personal anthropological observations, you know, living in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. where, of course... You know, I've I've lived in Amsterdam. I'm 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 an immigrant myself. I'm an immigrant from the United States. I moved here in 2001. I've always identified as an immigrant, and personally, always resisted this whole expat bullshit. I uh, <laughs> never really, uh, you know, I I recognize the, how it's problematic in a lot of ways. But yeah, I do see definite layers within the immigrant community to draw a broad definition of immigrants uh, in in Amsterdam of how a lot of what this definition of expat is as being a sort of privileged category of immigrants in the Netherlands does revolve around fluency in the English language. So English here is that, you know, fulfills that role of Mandarin in a certain way as being a sort of secondary vernacular, sort of even, you know, even among people who, I mean, I see it all the time, people have lived in the Netherlands, especially from Western countries who are, especially who are white, who are lived here for 20 years or so, and can barely uh, express themselves in Dutch. They still, in a certain way, feel connected to the community and, and feel like they have access to, you know, government services or, or being able to call the police because of their fluency in English. 
Whereas uh, immigrant communities that are not as handy in being able to express themselves fluently in English typically then do fall out of the category of expat and then into the category of immigrant. We see that here in Ireland, which is very actually interesting. Um, Lilith's experience uh, having been in Ireland recently will echo this, I'm sure. But with Irish um, immigrants who want to come to Ireland have to prove proficiency in English, which is an uncomfortable position, should be. I mean, I don't think the government views it as uncomfortable for them, but it should be seen as such because it all it denigrates the already very contested nature and position of Irish in Ireland even further down. And in fact, there's a very famous TV commercial uh, in Ireland from a few years ago, which sort of echoes this. It, it shows a young Chinese student who's just landed in Ireland and he's lost. So he, you know, walks into a pub and he starts speaking Irish um, because apparently that he learned that before he came because he thought he's going to a new country. He should learn the language. <laughs> so he starts speaking in Irish and asking the bartender for um directions to go somewhere and this poor boy is like constantly trying to communicate with him in Irish and the man thinks he's speaking to him in Chinese uh, and, ref- and and doesn't understand him there's a lot of miscommunication the boy is very dejected and there's an old man an old white Irish man who's sitting there who's watching this whole thing and he interrupts and goes and speaks to the boy in Irish and and the boy is very confused because he says, you know, he's like, I thought I, I came prepared. I took months and months of Irish lessons and no one understands me. And, you know, the, the old man just tells him, oh, you know, don't worry. This is just, you know, you, you're doing well or something like that. And the bartender comes to this old man and says to him in English, I didn't know you spoke Chinese. And, <laughs> and it, was, it, was an, it was an ad to, you know, force people to learn Irish more. But it just, it's, it's this whole thing again of, of language supremacy. And, you know, they're trying themselves so hard to, and there's so many people agitating to keep, give Irish more importance. But their own immigration policies betray their racism when Irish is not the language that any immigrant needs to prove to know. It's English. Evelyn, is this also a familiar theme from your work, the distinction between the expat and the migrant worker based on linguistic fluency or yeah, uh, English fluency? I was just about to say um, English is also like the supremest language in Hong Kong, even though we're all speaking mostly Cantonese and we're all Chinese. But English, because I guess because we are we were a colonial um, colony, well, the British colony, so we've always seen people, English-speaking people, as superior to Chinese-speaking people. So in Hong Kong, the hierarchy is expats because they're seen as like white white collar professionals who are recruited here because of their high skills and then local Hong Kong people and then uh, the migrant workers. And even within migrant workers, um, we I, I can see like Filipinos because they speak English. They're more conversant in uh, speaking with everyone else in the community with understanding everything. And our official language is English and Chinese so they can read everything. But um, comparatively, the, say, the Sri Lankans or the Indonesians, they are at a serious disadvantage because they don't really know what's going on. They don't know their rights. They can't really mingle with the rest of the society. They can't even 
seek easy help because say if you go to an NGO wanting assistance or you go to a lawyer wanting assistance, you need an interpreter and you can't really communicate without an interpreter and things like that will barriers to, to people um, vindicating themselves or, or having a, some sort of empowerment for themselves. I'm so glad that you brought in imperialism because I think that that's an echo in all of your work, that you are all dealing with post-colonial issues in one way or another. How do you see imperialism, and this is a question for everyone, how do you see imperialism influencing definitions of citizenship from the formation of empires in the U.S. case to the aftermath of their withdrawal from former British colonies or collapse in the case of the post-Soviet countries? It's actually an imported concept because it started in the early 1970s when just a very few number of foreign domestic helpers were permitted to come to Hong Kong to work with their expatriate employers. They were allowed on a case-by-case basis really exceptionally. So this is when Hong Kong is still a British colony and um, the expats are, are the rich, wealthy, powerful folks. The reason why these expats prefer foreign domestic helpers, I think, is because they are English speaking. So they don't want local Chinese helpers. So At the time, it was more of an exceptional arrangement, but then increasingly, after a while, local families started having a demand for domestic helpers. Um, There was a shortage of local people willing to do domestic work. So the policy expanded to allow everyone to uh, employ foreign domestic helpers. So it's now comprising of 5% 5% of the population, it's one in every eight households. It's a huge number. But the funny thing is that while the beginnings of foreign domestic helpers stems from the expat community, foreign domestic helpers are now so extensively employed by local families that they are no longer seen as appendages to the expat families, but rather a necessary component of the local community. And yet, being turned so commonplace does not really mean that they can shed their anomalous status and be accepted as a member of society. And rather, it's perversely due to them being so many, the government cannot bear the immigration implications of allowing them for residency status because there are too many of them. They will crash Hong Kong, things like that. So the government has been affirming again and again that the policy is to exclude them from normal residency rules. So even if say, even if they live for a long time, they can't get residency, things like that. And then it becomes, socially speaking, it becomes the local Chinese are exploiting these foreignly recruited domestic helpers worse, even worse than the expats. So the expats treat them really nicely. They pay them usually typically more than the minimum uh, salary point. Um, They allow them really good living conditions, but it's the local families who are really giving them a very difficult life. Well, obviously, this has been a huge issue for the United States from the very beginning. Native American population, that's part of our imperial heritage here in the United States. How are they to be treated? The Constitution gives um, all authority over Indian uh, affairs, as they call it, to uh, the federal government to uh, Congress, but the courts for 200 plus years have waffled all over the place. Are they citizens of the United States? Are their rights protected under the Constitution? It is 
an inconsistent story. And the more the United States expanded, the more it became an issue for them. Um, my favorite example is always New Mexico. Under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the Mexican-American War in 1848, New Mexico was supposed to become a state immediately, a state of the United States. And Congress refused to accept their statehood until 1912 for the very simple reason that the majority of the population of New Mexico until the 1910 census was Native American and uh, and uh, Hispanic. And Congress did not want this new state sending two senators and uh, as many as three or four members of the House of Representatives who were not white. And that is what would have happened if they had let New Mexico into the union. So they were denying citizenship rights from the start to the majority of the population of what was um, called New Mexico territory. The more the U.S. expanded, the more this crisis developed. Obviously, part of the American imperial expansion between the years um, 1790 and 1860 was the expansion of the slave republic. And the more they expanded, the more they increase the slave population, which of course creates all sorts of constitutional issues and problems and led to the Civil War um, as they expand westward and they start to welcome immigrants from Asia in. As I mentioned earlier, that leads to all sorts of crises. What happens if they have children here? They become citizens. And once the U.S. becomes a trans-Pacific empire by taking the Philippines and Guam um, and into the Atlantic with Puerto Rico, um, we start to get all these non-white Catholic subjects. And the Supreme Court goes back and forth on that issue as well. What rights are they actually uh, endowed with under the Constitution? There is no obvious answer. And it really comes down to sort of informal relations. Curiously, even though California Um, the political leadership is incredibly bigoted against Asians. They seem to make an exception for Filipinos. And it may be because though they are Catholic and Asian, they learn to speak English. And that language skill seems to have counted for quite a lot. Uh, You can see it in the state legislature records in the uh, 1920s, where the California legislature is debating whether or not they're going to allow citizenship rights to Filipinos coming into California. And they decide they are because they speak English. They make it very clear. But that becomes a qualifier then. Do you speak English? And if you don't, well, then you can't be a citizen. And that's not in the Constitution. So it creates all sorts of contradictions and crises for white supremacists. So one thing he mentioned about the 1910 census. So when you asked the question about imperialism, I think the biggest likes of imperialism here is actually the census and who is counted in the census and not just who is counted, but how they are counted. Who, like, what are the categories that go on a census? And so when you start out in the U.S. case, whites versus blacks, and that was the distinction, right? Whites versus blacks, I guess, and then versus Native Americans. But then this is where then you suddenly get into Texas, New Mexico, right? That then suddenly there's a, oh no, there's another dimension. What do we do with this other dimension of people that were part of, that are Spanish speaking, formerly part of the Spanish empire? What do we do with them? And so then there's this weird extra line that pops out about, are you Hispanic, right? In our census. And this just really categorizes us and it 
The census actually um, class puts us into these bins and it really, I mean, I think we all need to somehow, we do need to do a census. We do need a head count. I think it is important for that, but it's the, the legacy of imperialism is how these bins are created and what the bins yeah. are. And I think, you know, a big issue that came up in 2020 for the 2020 census was Arab Americans. There is no box for Arab Americans. And they are told to check the box white. And of course, there's a big issue of like, are they actually, are they white? Or, and if they are considered white, they certainly do not enjoy the security of being white. And then if you think about who gets left off the census, and this may not necessarily, uh, so that's the group that's left off. And, um, and you also imagine the groups change over time. And so, and if you think about citizenship where the security is afforded to certain groups on the census, then that suggests this is also a legacy of imperialism. Thank you so much. There are so many more questions I wanna ask, and I'm sure you also have questions for each other. But to conclude, I wanted to have a quick look to the future, perhaps even with some hope. So ask you, how would you like to see the concept or deployment of citizenship evolve in the future? As Michael would ask, how do we protect equal citizenship and de-weaponize it? Or what should we do with citizenship? My instinct is to be the, the angry anarchist and say, break all borders, but you know, I'm, I'm going to, <laughs> I don't think that solves any, anything right now. I know there's a, uh, there's also a tension in me as well because um, you know of course citizenship has this exclusionary dimension you know which is what makes immigration law possible which is what makes the regulation of human movement possible or the restriction of human movement possible which is very abject you know and 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 should be rejected yet you know I I feel attached of course to this lofty ideal of citizenship of inclusion of inclusiveness. And so I suppose my ideal is if I could just get that inclusiveness without the exclusiveness, if I could at least work on within a given, you know, within a given community where citizenship is a relevant uh, legal dimension to somehow, you know, to somehow encourage people to really think of that purely as an abstract holder, placeholder of rights, rather than placing secondary conditions of whiteness or religion or, or race on it for genuine enjoyment of those rights. That would, I suppose, be my ideal for citizenship. Well, again, law is always about enforcement. And it seems to me, you're looking forward, being positive. The fact, I, I feel like quoting Henry IV here, uh, Shakespeare, away you moldy rogue, away. I mean, we've gotten rid of someone who was opposed to the concept of equal rights. We now theoretically have in the presidency someone who has spoken in favor of equality and of equal rights under the law and has made appointments in the Justice Department um, to revive the Civil Rights Division. The Key here, it seems to me, is always to be found in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of our Constitution that all persons should enjoy the same rights before the law, that equality and citizenship are linked in our Constitution here in the United States, and that the courts and the various justice departments, not simply the federal, but the states, should operate on that really rather simple principle and hopefully, if this becomes a trend in the United States, maybe even police forces will operate on the same principle. I would agree with um, Michael. I think recognizing that everyone is equal is the key to the future because I'm not that concerned about citizenship as a form. 
I'm more concerned about citizenship as um, a substantive status, a membership. And um, the way to go is to change the perception of how we look at each other. And if we change that, then we change the definition of who is to be a citizen and who is not. Uh, I agree with Michael. I think equality before the law is important. But what I'm afraid of is that it's a very input-focused definition of like everyone is equal, has equal opportunity to do something. But we know that clearly is not the outcome. Um, There's certainly great inequities across races in the U.S. And so what I would hope for is some initiative or some way that we can focus on the equity on the outcome and ensuring that citizenship, Mm. it's not just that everyone has equal opportunity to secure, to enjoy security, but everyone actually does enjoy security. Excellent point. I think my very limited experience of having practiced the law and then studying it for all these years has really solidified my initial view, which is the law inherently is unequal. And so maybe the solutions lie outside the law, despite, yes, of course, where, I mean, all of us are talking uh, within the confines of it, but to sort of echo what Amy said, yes, equality before the law is incredibly important, but if the law to start with reinforces inequality, reinforces injustice, then it's not just that that's needed. It's also real life on the ground grassroots change that's required to what it means to be a citizen. Because you can fight for your citizenship rights, you can fight for rights that emanate from being a citizen. But if there's no real respect for that uh, in the real world, uh, it, it amounts to very little in front of the law. And you, Lilith, what do you think? I will have to listen to this all over again and then decide. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm qualified. (laughs) You are all specialists in citizenship well beyond my knowledge of it. And so I am so grateful that you agreed to join this conversation and so thrilled by all the points that came up and all the ways that your work resonated with one another. Thank you so much. Public Sphere is hosted by the Trinity Longroom Hub and is produced by Don Seymour Kloss, Sahar Ahmed, Siobhan Callahan, Elizabeth Foley, Dr. Claire Moriarty, and Dr. Lilith Acadia, with many thanks to Angus O'Loughlin for the jingle. For more information about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can visit our show notes at bit.ly forward slash public sphere, hosted by the Trinity Longroom website. Thank you for listening. Thank you.